The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi everybody, Andrew Gormley, CEO of Classic Flyers here. If you're interested in classic aviation and you want to get up close and personal to old aircraft and see some of New Zealand's aviation history, come across the Classic Flyers, Jean Batten Drive, Mount Monganui, right on the edge of the airport. You can go for flights in old aeroplanes like Boeing Stearmans and Harvards. There's lots to see, kids' parties happening here all the time. We have functions and function rooms, business meetings, and a great cafe with excellent coffee. If you'd like to be involved with Classic Flyers, we also have the volunteer groups who do all things from helping out with function work or just on the main hangar floor with visitors and guests or birthday parties, right through to engineers who get involved in restoring some of our wonderful old aircraft assets. It's a great place and it's in a good location. Come and have a visit. Check out the website on www.classicflyersnz.com The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host Dave Homewood. Today I've got a special privilege of visiting number five squadron at RNZF at Whanuapai. And I'm sitting in a room with uh, a number of aircrew and engineering staff who work on the Orions. Um, I'll just introduce who's here. Yeah, g'day Dave. I'm uh, Wing Commander Glenn Donaldson. I'm the uh, commanding officer at five squadron at the moment. Uh, joined Fire Squadron back in 2000 and I've uh, pretty much spent most of my career sort of in and out of different positions on the, on the unit. So great to be here with you today. G'day, I'm uh, Tony Strugnell, I'm a uh, flight engineer, started in uh, 2004 as, as an avionics tech and then uh, went aircrew in 2006. Yep. Hi Dave, uh, Squadron Leader Paul Barrett, I'm the maintenance flight commander currently. Uh, my first, uh, first joined the squadron in 1998 as a mechanic. Uh, and I was uh, lucky enough to get selected for, for aircrew. Spent about 10 years as a, as a flight engineer next to Tony, uh, and then um, took a commission and have returned to ground engineering as an engineering officer now, and, uh, and currently the maintenance flight commander. G'day, Flight Lieutenant Tom Peterson. Um, I'm a pilot. I've been on squadron since uh, 2019, um, so on unit uh, until transition to the PA. Hi, I'm uh, Flying Officer Holly Graham. I'm one of the line IMs on Squadron. I joined just last year in 2021. Hi, I'm Nikita Kripbain. I joined Squadron in 2020, flew on the P3 for two years and have just finished my transition in America to the PA. 
great. Well, it's a great bunch of people. Um, what does the Orion mean to you guys? And we don't have to go around in order. Um, anyone want to jump in? It's it's a pretty special aircraft, isn't it, for the country? Um, yeah, it is. It's um, I guess we, we talked about this last year, just about how when we first started retiring the P3s, um, and just about how it is kind of part of our family. Um, in, in other nations, it's just another asset. It's uh, it's metal and um, and rivets and uh, and props and engines. Uh, but to us, you know, we've got uh, a pretty strong association, especially for, for those of us that have flown on it for a long time. Um, you know, we've got bonds to certain events that we've, you know, certain trips that we've been away on or certain search and rescues um, that we've done with, uh, with certain aircraft. So uh, without doubt, you know, this, um, this aircraft has probably a lot more meaning to the, the people of Five Squadron than, than you might experience in other, uh, other nations. But um, yeah, it's, it's a bittersweet moment to see the retirement of the P3 um, as, we, as we've been retiring them. But also, at the same time, it's exciting to actually see some uh, some new development and technology coming in for the future. Yeah, absolutely. Ah, it's tough as nails. <laughs> Basically, <laughs> it'll pretty much always get you home. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for me, David, it's a, it's a piece of history. Um, my father was a 40 squadron flight engineer here at Fenerbahce, so in my childhood, I can remember P3s on the on the flight line and C12s on the flight line, and then getting the opportunity to actually. Uh, fly the airplane as well. It kind of gives you a sense of how long we've been around, how long they've served the country, um, and yeah, like the boss says, they've uh, each of them's got a personality as well. Uh, once you've flown them for a while, they've all got their own quirks. So, done a number of generations. Um, we uh, we've got uh, one of our pilots who's over uh, transitioning to the P8 at the moment, but flew on them. His dad um, flew on the on the P3 and was a flight commander here at Five Squadron and. One of our ex-CEOs, Keith Graham, it was, um, his father was actually a, a sensor operator who first bought the P3s out. Um, okay. So this is it's a multi-generational aircraft and it's pretty amazing that you see some families and then sons and then grandsons and granddaughters and what have you now starting to come through. Um, so uh, I guess that shows the, um, the longevity of the aircraft in New Zealand. Absolutely. And when you think about it, when it was first introduced in 1966, some of the senior pilots then were probably... Wartime pilots, or or just after the war, so it could be it could even be like a fourth generation coming through now. Yeah, <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Um, so you've got three aircraft left on the squadron at the moment. Um, three have retired. Uh, I, I guess um, you're still doing the same sort of work as you were doing when you had six aircraft, and and you, or, or has it has it sort of had to roll down a little bit? It's um, not as intense as it was, and we're not doing the big, the big sort of trips that we were doing. I guess we're not doing the the, um, the big overseas exercises and stuff like that. But we're still holding SAR. We're still, um, you know, just flew a tapestry yesterday. Um, yeah, we're still doing. We'll be doing everything right up until the last, whenever that is, right up until the last flight. Yeah, and of course you got crews away in the states with the P eight as well. Yeah. 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 So, yes, so, so from a squadron perspective, I guess the um, the personnel numbers, we would normally have 100 uh, people within the ops flight and uh, around about the same, about 100 people in the maintenance flight if we were uh, if we were fully manned. Um, six aircraft, we're now operating with around about um, 45 in each flight and three aircraft, so we've been cut in half, but 
In terms of the overall hours, you know, that's been pared down as well. So uh, we're flying 800 hours for, for this financial year, uh, which is effectively just under half of what would uh, normally be expected around about that 1800 hour mark. So, um, so although the hours and, and people have been cut down, the, um, the actual level of output in terms of our patrolling um, for New Zealand, the search and rescue piece that Tony was talking about, uh, we're actually still maintaining that at about the same. So we've just had to adjust how we do our business to make sure that we're outputting as much as we can still for, um, for the government of New Zealand. I had the privilege of visiting the squadron in 2016 when the 75th anniversary reunion happened and um, got to interview a number of uh, key personnel at the time. And I remember the CEO then, uh, DJ Hunt, and the maintenance flight commander um, were both saying even way back then, before the P-8 had been selected and all that, that the Iran was really sort of starting to become um, sort of a problem with maintenance and, and mainly getting parts. And I guess you're probably still in that position with part, part sourcing from overseas, with Lockheed no longer producing parts for the Iran. Oh, this is definitely the maintenance flight domain. Yeah. They, parts are, are, are still a challenge. I think our, um, our supply chain uh, tends to try and think of pretty creative ways to, um, to continue to maintain the airplane. Um, we probably repair a lot of things that we maybe other nations don't um, in order to try and keep things going. Uh, and then often you have uh, what I kind of term engineering solutions to logistics problems where um, we'll even swap parts between aircraft uh, when we've got scheduled servicings on so that we can continue to fly things. So um, in terms of availability, I think we do very well with what we've got, um, but yeah, there's definitely challenges in keeping a, um, an aircraft of this age alive in terms of supply chain, yeah. Does it, uh, has it possibly gotten slightly better that other countries have retired their ones already? And so there's not so much demand on the, on the supply chain that's out there? I think um, one of the biggest challenges is, is what COVID's done to international supply chains. So whilst that would possibly have been an option, getting parts to New Zealand is still a real challenge. Um, so like I said, uh, I think our supply chain people keep their options open and, and uh, have got all kinds of clever ideas for how to, how to do it, yeah. um, but repair is probably still one of our, one of our backstops. Yeah. Does it make you jealous that uh, Haas in Australia are flying one as a Warburg now? Uh, <laughs> How yes, do they do yes. it? Yeah. I talked to them yeah. a couple of weeks back at the yes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. I'd like to be doing it still for a few more years. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm just, uh, I'm wondering about um, sort of individual stories that you can tell me about special missions or ones that stick in your mind. So who, who's got a who's got an interesting story of the Orion? Well, how much time have you got? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's plenty, but I, I'm interested to hear from, uh, I guess, our, our newer additions yeah. to the squadron and in terms of what their experiences are and some of the stories that they've um, uh, hit so far, so yeah, sure. uh, and, and especially from Nikita, who's recently just transitioned to the P8, and uh, I guess some of the, the stories that are associated with them. So, yeah, 
Oh, I guess one of my favourite times we went back to the P3. Um, I didn't really go overseas much on it, but my first trip out to the islands, we did a seven-day Norpat to Rarotonga, and it was like literally one day after Rarotonga had opened back up. So by that time, COVID had been around for like 18 months. And just sitting at the resort, we had done our mission for the day and seeing all the Air New Zealand planes coming in and over the next like 48 hours, like the resort just started filling up. And I guess like it was pretty cool to like be overseas during that time where New Zealand was still pretty locked in COVID, but the islands were starting to open up. And it was just really exciting talking to people like working over in the islands as well because they were so excited for all of us to be coming back. and then I guess moving on to the PH, um, I know it's just a completely different aircraft to fly. Um, while we were over, like one of our last flights, we managed to have a bat strike, which is one of, like the first time they've ever aborted a takeoff on the PA over there. So I know that was pretty cool because everyone was like, how did the New Zealand guys get to do that? But. I've got a bat on the P3. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> Not often we get bat strikes here in Fanoa Place, there's certainly one for the history books. Yeah. It was pretty funny because the pilots called aboard and we were all like, it was like one of our last flights and we just really wanted to get it done. We'd had so many flights cancelled due to weather. Um, and then um, the tower sent someone out onto the runway and radio through that it just hit a bat and we were, we were just we didn't know what to do like we were kind of at that point we were glad it wasn't a bird because we originally thought it was a bird strike but because it was a bat we were kind of okay with the flight being cancelled <laughs> so has the has a little bat kill been painted on the side <laughs> 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 Um, what about uh, you, Holly? Because uh, I know uh, having just recently graduated, you've um, and things have opened up, so we've started getting back up into Southeast Asia and uh, and what have you again. So, what are, what are your experiences in the very short amount of time that you've had on the P three? I mean, I think it was about three weeks after I graduated the conversion course that we went up to Southeast Asia. Um, it was going from training in New Zealand waters with a handful of boats, a handful of ships and then going out into those really high contact density spaces and proving to yourself that you could still do everything just 10 times faster. Um, so that was, that was pretty cool, right off the bat of the back course. Um, but I think the thing that really stands out to me was um, spending my birthday in Fiji. Um, we were on the SAR and uh, we got pulled out. It was a really successful SAR. We found uh, the family in their, their wee, uh, wee dinghy just floating, drifting in the ocean. We organised a, a rendezvous with a tugboat for them, um, and then was, was looking forward to getting home the next day. We stopped off in Fiji, and um, I was ready to report and uh, do the, the the fuel briefs and stuff in our package brief. And um, the crew pulled out a, a birthday cake and started singing. Um, and I guess it's the it shows the awesome balance between getting the mission done, but also having a bit of fun and looking after each other. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So um, you mentioned the search and rescue. Uh, the squadron, is there a tally of how many people have ever been saved by the, the P3? It'd be interesting to know, wouldn't it? It'd be hundreds, wouldn't it? Steve Graham's yeah. book 
did it up to about 2012, I think is. Yeah. Well, we've tried to cover off a lot of them, but there's been a lot since, and I don't know that it, it wasn't an exhaustive. Yeah. Uh, so and in terms of numbers of, uh, of people, um, yeah, nobody's ever sort of kept the tally of the total numbers of people, but um, I would say it would, would be in the thousands in terms of numbers of people that are actually alive and you know, still with their families. Um, and you know, Holly's example is a perfect example. That thingy was a family with um, was it four in there, Holly? Yeah. And one of them was a four-year-old girl. Uh, and when you hear, you know, uh, get the reports coming through from the rescue coordination centre saying there's a family and there's a four-year-old child on there, um, you just have this real sharp focus of making sure that you want to um, do your best, get there as quick as you can um, to to make sure that family actually has a chance in the future so that that for me that's kind of one of the biggest successes over the last couple of years was when I got that report back back here in New Zealand from the, the crew saying that they'd found that family um, massive relief um, you know, other examples was the um, uh, the sailing vessel Essence um, where we responded within 45 minutes to a um, I think it was a mayday call and um, there was four out of the five people that, um, that survived. Unfortunately, one, one person died as they were being um, recovered by the rescue helicopter. But again, if we hadn't have been there in 45 minutes and dropped them that life raft, then that would have been all five, um, as an example. So I'd, I'd say we're in the thousands in terms of the total number of people saved. Um, so it's, and that for me is, is still one of the um, most amazing things about this aircraft and the crews that fly it is um, what we actually do for people. But, and when you think about it, it's only one squadron, only six aircraft, and thousands of people have been saved by them. You know, it's pretty pretty special. I don't think any other squadron flying them in the world would have probably that kind of record. I don't think anyone has that big a SAR area. Exactly, yeah. You know, it's six aircraft for a big chunk of the, the world's ocean. So. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's always interesting too, you see the news reports come out, you know, an Orion's been scrambled and, you know, only usually a matter of hours or a day later, they've been found. You know, it's like, wow, in the middle of the ocean, they find a dinghy. Incredible. Yeah, one of the more recent ones was um, a really interesting one because um, we went to, on, on a search and rescue to look for um, a small dinghy um, that was, that we'd sort of estimated it probably drifted about 300 miles um, and it's obviously a very very big puck as to um, where it actually is so we've got to put a big area around it to search. Um, that crew went up and not only did they find that missing vessel but they actually located another missing vessel that um, the American Coast Guard was, was apparently launching to start coming down to look for um, you know, and we, we'd been given an indication, but no idea. They were supposed to be over 500 miles apart. Right. Um, our crews found both of them uh, within the space of, I think, about 50 miles of one another. So it just shows you the kind of randomness of, of where things ought to be based on, you know, drift modelling and, and what actually turns up. Okay. Um, so, but to have um, two dinghies found, you know, probably over 300 miles from land uh, in the space of one SAR, Phenomenal. That's a half, good half of the sar successful sales I've done. The boat's been found just outside the search area. Right. It's, right. it's a pretty common theme. Mm. But I mean, it's all it's all best guess based on the you know 
from the guys at the RCC and they're based on on the inputs they've got. Yeah. And so, yeah, we don't discount anything just because it's not in the in the box. Right. Okay. Um, have you have you guys got any SAR memories? That I think that, um, the one that boss talked about there, essence. I think were you on that? Tom as well. That was that was my first yeah, flight after was, yeah. qualifying. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I I just qualified and we were we were pre-flighting the plane for just a training flight, and then the captain who was a really senior QFI, I was just doing my super junior pre-flight walking around with my little tunnel vision, and the captain was like running to the plane, and I was like, oh man, that doesn't look normal, um, and he's just like <laughs> go strap in right now, and I was like, but I'm still doing my pre-flight, and he's like strap in right now, we're going. And went and jumped in, and that essence SAR was really close. Like it's when when they're way up north in the Pacific, you get a couple of hours that the crew can talk about it all. But that one, it was literally ten minutes, and we were on station, and the weather was absolutely terrible. Diabolical. I got to talk to one of the Westpac um, crewmen that were on the scene as well, and the, the, he was a really salty old crewman who had lots of experience. And it's the worst conditions he'd ever flown in. Wow. So for context. And I remember just descending into those conditions. It was the cloud base was 600 feet. The waves were eight meters high. It was 50 knots of wind. It was just absolutely terrible. And just having, remember thinking that my, the training that we'd done just overlaid onto the context of that situation. It was just amazing to see the crew apply the general kind of training methodology, but then apply it over a really complicated situation yeah and also i actually remember thinking that my sa was just very <laughs> small in the mission context because i was so junior and that i was just gonna watch the captain and make sure that i was monitoring him and making sure that we were keeping a safe flight path and that was that was my goal yeah. but then through several other stars that i've been been involved with then it all kind of builds into that um your kind of experience bank so now arriving, like the couple that um, the CEO mentioned before, that I've been a part of as well, you kind of being able to pull on experience of previous SARS and then not cookie cutter, but be able to apply it to, to build and fix and solutions for that situation. It's really cool. cool. Yeah, I guess there's always a little bit of thinking outside the box as well to, to make these things actually happen. Totally. Yeah. I think that that's a really unique thing for a lot of P3 ops because it's not often it's kind of not an open-ended task, but a there's a lot of unknown variables. So there's a lot of things that the crew needs to decide at the time and come up with a plan and change the plan and amend and flight. So, and it's what I really like about it is that there's so many different trades on board the aircraft that you've got so many different SMEs mm. and you're all a mission crew for a SAR is 12 people with multiple different trades, so you're all kind of applying your specialist skills together um, to come up with kind of, you know, the sum of the parts are greater than the whole, or whatever that saying is, um, to, to come up with kind of like a really effective crew to solve the mission setting. It's so cool. And then you've got people with their skills from their hobbies and whatnot, so a bit like the SAR that I was on, um, one of our ordnance men, he's a sailor himself, um, and so he was just throwing in things like, well, this is what I would do, or right. this is what I've seen the sea do before, and this is where I would look. And, uh, you know, you add that to what you know from the modelling and you just kind of tweak it a little bit, and then that's where they are. Yeah, that's, 
That's a really good point. Are there many people on the squadron who go sailing and, and, and get this sort of knowledge? Or? I'm way less inclined to. I <laughs> <laughs> probably used to be, to be quite honest. Yeah. Um, Given the, the number of situations that yeah. we've seen, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm the same as you, mate. Yeah. I wouldn't, uh, yeah. wouldn't go out in a yacht beyond 10 yeah. miles. Yeah. I've seen a few too many yachts with no masts in the middle of, you know, hundreds of miles from land and people saying, I want to get off now. Um, and, and yeah, you're kind of like, it's one thing which is, I do find it a little bit hard, but you you cannot in the P three you cannot go down and rescue them. You can't. You can sit over here and you've got a coffee and a, and whatever. Um, you can't put yourself in their situation. Um, you you know you can get a life raft to them. You can guide a rescue boat to them, but you just can't go down into the water and pluck them out. Yeah. And um, so that's probably one of the harder parts of the job is actually yeah. sitting over here a boat where the people are genuinely in real real distress. Um, and you're talking to them on the radio, and you, you, you're like, yep, a boat's on the way, um, we can drop her after you if you need to, but you're actually just going to have to sit tight and, mm. and hold on, and um, yeah. It can be a helpless yeah. feeling sometimes, um, <clears throat> because even when the boat's there for, uh, for a rescue doesn't necessarily mean to say that all's safe. Uh, and I remember one search and rescue that I was on uh, very shortly after we, we got our current um, electro-optics kit, so for the first time, we had um, you know this really good um, high-resolution camera, uh, infrared camera. Uh, it was a nighttime search and rescue um, for a dismasted yacht, um, very high sea state. Again, we're talking you know the the eight to ten meter waves. Um, the container ship that we got to come alongside for the for the rescue um, was was actually having to drop some containers in terms of ballast as they they were trying to come in. Um, and I was watching um, on this beautiful, clear electro-optics picture as the bulb of the nose of the container ship was coming right out of the water. The waves were so big, and then this tiny little yacht that was sitting underneath it. And um, pretty much thought we were watching a yacht being crushed as it got, uh, got too close. And then you're hearing over the radio screaming in absolute terror um, of the... Um, people on the yacht basically saying, get him out of here, he's about to kill us. Um, so so just because the yacht's there to, the, um, uh, sorry, a, a vessel's there to be uh, save the people on the yachts, does not mean to say that all is well and all is safe. So actually, you know, from that situation, we had to direct the, the cargo vessel to stand off, basically just sit, um, let the yacht sit in the lee so it could actually sort of slowly calm down and basically just sit and wait until the morning until things had calmed down a little bit. Um, and when it was safer, daylight hours, to actually affect the actual rescue. Um, but again, kind of like Tom talked about, being able to bank that experience, you know, if I was to ever end up in a situation like that again, and, and there has been situations where we can just say, we just need you to just sit off for a while, talk to the yacht about what's happening, um, and then just make sure that we're helping to coordinate as uh, safe a rescue as possible. Yeah. Um, so lots of different situations you find yourself in. I think sometimes now we're actually a bit less inclined to drop risk, um, like the mad the um, rescue packs because on a number of SARS I've been on, we've dropped a rescue pack with water and stuff like that. Um, there's possibly been a boat within a few hours of them, but we think, oh, well, you know, we get some water out to them. Drop the rescue pack, it miss it, you know, because they've got a line on them, so you're never super accurate there with it. And they just, the pilot uses his boot as the um, as the reference point for making the drop, so it's you know a little bit of give and take and um, someone will jump in the water and start swimming for the thing and then they could put themselves in a really in a real pickle yeah. and so 
quite often these days we actually don't like if if we know a boat's coming if they look healthy we'll just sit over here and it, it, we've got the rescue stuff in the back pocket if we need it but yeah yeah you, you don't want to make someone and put someone in a worse situation by trying to drop them something that they're not in an immediate need of yeah yeah i, I what i really like in those decision making moments is i, I sort of talked about it before about having the full mission crew you're all having that conversation while you overhead that situation and you're all coming up with that plan and everyone's chiming in with their their previous experiences and what they suggest is the outcome and and tackle and captain coming up with the right this is the plan this is how we're going to do it that's it's just such a cool kind of teamwork really acute teamwork model in the in the situation yeah so cool yeah very cool um so with the um p8 coming on is this going to be able to do the same sort of search and rescue work? Because I've, there's a lot of rumours that you can't do the same sort of work with the P8. Um, I don't know, Makita, have you got any comments? <laughs> I know you've just gone through training, but um, I know there's still a lot of work to go on in terms of the capability development with the P8. Yeah. Um, but I'm not sure what's what's been briefed to the team so far. Um, we haven't really been briefed much, but... Um, I do know over in America, the PEP instructors that went over before us, um, they were involved in at least one SAR over in America. Um, they were already out flying in the area, and the Americans don't do this very often because they use their Coast Guard, and they were very surprised at how the New Zealanders ran the SAR, and they pretty much just took over, did what they needed to do. I'm pretty sure it turned out well, and they found who they needed to find. But I guess... Like going forward next year, we're going to go over to Australia and they'll give us some training in how they use the P8s for SAR. So, um, I guess just using our past experience and what other how the other countries use the P8 as well. I know the Australians were um, working with the Americans in terms of um, uh, getting unipacks, so life rafts fitted, being able to be fitted and dropped from the Bombay. Um, so that was kind of a development piece for the P8 um, that, that the Australians were able to do with the Americans. Um, so I think there's certainly a capability there, but then, you know, how we actually employ that capability um, and to what extent, you know, that, that, that's still some work that needs to go on by the um, uh, by the team that's setting up the, the P8, the squadron, and obviously still working with the um, the government from an outputs perspective as well. Purely speculative and just the world according to Paul, but the boss <laughs> and I, the boss and I were on the OTNE um, program for the K2, and one of the things that we found was that, uh, in actual fact, when you try and do the operational testing for a SAR scenario you find that it's made up of all of the elements that uh, the warfighting capabilities that the aircraft has. So the ability of the radar to find the small target in the water, um, the ability of the crew to communicate with um, vessels, um, the, the even visually looking out the window, um, identifying small objects in the water, those kind of things which the P-8 is definitely designed to do are the building blocks for a search and rescue. So um, aside from dropping the unipack in the water, uh, I feel that it's just the Kiwi way to work out how to do the job with the tools that you've got. Yeah. So we will sort it out. I'm supremely confident that 
uh, you know, we'll, we'll learn to use a P8 in a way that gets the same result, whether it's uh, at 200 feet or at 10,000 feet, um, will depend on the tool. Yeah. I don't know about dropping a Lindholm life raft from 10,000 feet, but... <laughs> well, that depends on what it's designed to be, where it's designed to be dropped from. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's all kinds of innovative solutions coming out at the moment. Yeah, that's that's the feeling I've always had when people have had this argument. Oh, they can't do SAR. Well, why not? We're Kiwis, <laughs> you know. It'll just. Yeah. I mean, the you know the guys going from the Sunderland to the P three would have probably said the same thing. The Sunderland <laughs> days, you read some of the reports from those guys, and they've literally just dropped down and picked people up. Yeah. And then they moved to the P three, and all of a sudden they can't do that anymore. So you know. Yeah. Um, but this you know P eight's going to be faster. It's going to um, so get to the SAR region, SAR area quicker, which will have some advantages. So it's going to be you know. We'll do so. We just need to work out how to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the interesting thing about the guys doing that in the Sunderlands, they weren't actually meant to land on the open water. No, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but they would yeah. sometimes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. When it, when it was needed. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it just makes sense that you know the squadron's always been innovative, and and so is the R N Z F, and so. A way will be found, because otherwise you're going to have to have another aircraft doing it, aren't you? Yep. <laughs> and that's not going to happen. Yeah. Um, I know this. There was previous um, discussions around the uh, Hercules picking it up, um, and and that you know still may be an option in terms of um, kind of a, a hybrid approach to it. Um, you know, at the end of the day, the 40 squadrons still have a uh, massive workload from uh, from air transport, airlift, um, air mobility. Um, so in terms of, and they're about to start going through this transition as well, so in terms of their actual availability, um, you know, I don't think it's going to rest with one squadron, um, but I think as, uh, as Nikita's um, quite um, put it really, really simplistically, we will figure a way of doing it, um, and, and whether or not that's joint with 40 Squadron and, and with uh, that, but ultimately the PH still has all the tools um, and the, the most important tools are the, um, the humans on the inside yeah. um, and they will make it work in some way, shape or form. Yeah, mm. exactly. Um, what are your thoughts on the move to Ahaki? Are you guys looking forward to it? Well, I'm not going, so uh, I'm going to throw that to the, uh, to I think the, the, you, the you, you got about 50% of the room <laughs> yeah. not, not, not planning on making that move, so yeah. Yeah, yeah looking forward to it. I, I'm not a fan of traffic, so I'm looking for <laughs> <laughs> sort of house and fielding. It's going to be great. I'm much the same. I grew up in a small town. My hobbies revolve around having animals and land. Um, I didn't particularly want to come to Auckland. I just wanted to fly on the P3. Yeah. Um, so getting to do a similar job in a smaller town, it's all ticking boxes. Great. I've lived in Auckland my whole life, so I'm excited for change. Cool. So small town doesn't, doesn't bother you then? Yeah. No, not really. I mean, it's the people that make it, so. <laughs> Great comment. Yeah. <laughs> Very true. Yeah, I think it's probably like those of us who are a bit more settled and have, you know, partners with careers and yeah. things like that. For us, that's, but it, but the writing's been on the wall for a long time, so. Yeah. It's just Plenty of time to prepare for it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The, the real question, Dave, is, is Ohaki ready for us? <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I know there's, uh, there's obviously big change for the base down there. Um, 
but um, but yeah, Fire Squadron will be in there, and um, you know we'll certainly be taking the positive culture um, from up here down there. And um, uh, I know, in speaking with the base commander down there, that um, they're, they're pretty excited, um, but also aware that it will you know create challenges just for that transition piece as well. But it'll all settle in. Three Squadron moved down there. There was a big change with that. Um, but now they're part of the furniture down there, so it'll, it'll be the same. It's just kind of a changing face of their own ZF. Yeah. The thing I'm most looking forward to seeing is that guy that lives in bulls that moans about the noise. Wait till, <laughs> wait till you guys start taking off at two in the morning. Yeah. I guess the, the difference with the P8 from the P3 is, you know, um, the, the locals around here, one, they, they love us, just, they just don't like us doing night circuits. Um, but um, but down with the P8, you know, it's uh, with the simulators. Once we get them up and online, um, it won't be as much actual local training. So the aircraft will get airborne, it will go out and do its mission, it will come home again. Um, so it's not like it's bashing around in the circuit and um, uh, effectively overland for too too long. Yeah. Um, you know, there'll be a bit of that until we get our simulators up and up and running. But yeah. um, that is obviously the intention: is that she's airborne and mission bound. But will there be a period where there's a couple of P8s at a Harkier and half the squadron there and still P3s here at Whanuapai, like a transition period? Uh, yeah, so that's what we're in the middle of uh, right at the moment. So at this stage, the P8, um, first uh, P8 will be arriving. Uh, we have to go through a period of um, test and evaluation just to make sure that the um, capability is safe and effective um, is ultimately what test and evaluation is about. Um, so there will be a, around about a six-month period while the P8 is going through that initial um, test and evaluation um, to have the Airworthiness Authority then sign off on the capability. Um, once we, uh, effectively once the P8 reaches that stage of um, the initial operational release so it can do patrolling and it can do search and rescue, um, that's effectively uh, at this stage what the handover point is. Um, our plan at the moment is still to keep flying the P3 um, right up until that point. Um, so that's, you know, we keep half the squadron here as, uh, you know, Nikita being one of the ones, we've got half the, what was the squadron now working for Poseidon Transition Unit. Yep. Uh, and then once we formally hand over, I will um, pass the squadron standard and the, the mantle of five squadron uh, across to the, um, uh, the commanding officer of PTU. Okay. Are you three all staying in or getting out or staying stay in? Yep. Yeah, going to go be a truckie for a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> all trash, yep. Yeah. As an engineer, I could be anywhere, so yeah. um, there's plenty of um, plenty of uh, need. We're a bit short of engineers at the moment, so uh, yeah. yeah, there's all kinds of places I can go. Right. And you're staying in? Lots of good opportunities uh, in the Air Force, Dave. Um, so I'm still working through with DCM on what's next for me. I, I haven't actually come up with a plan yet, but um, but yeah, the intention is to sort of, sort of stick around and we'll see what happens. But um, as Tony said, you know, once the, the sort of family, um, you know, start putting the family first, and, and we'll see what changes. But um, my main focus is making sure that we actually just get to that point of handover and and we're as effective and. Uh, as good as we can be and looking after all of our people. Yeah. What the boss said about um, family is like the squadron is a pretty um, significant burden for families. Um, you spend probably maybe probably about a third, I reckon about a third of your life here on duty crew. Um, that's not that's not including all your other trips away, but yeah. just 
sitting there with a pager, um, have to be able to be at work in your uniform with an overnight bag packed within 30 minutes um, of a call out. Um, and so, yeah, if you're spending like 30 year time at home doing that, that's pretty um, pretty burdensome. Yeah. Um, and it's not just like, just for a little call out, like you can be away for a week or more um, on, on one of these SARS. So that's pretty hard going on the families. Yeah. So I know, I think my family are probably looking forward to having me around a little bit more. Maybe not. And <laughs> <laughs> hopefully, Sarah hasn't passed the 40 squadron. And... Uh, probably would. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they've already been talking to me about that. <laughs> so, um, Tom, tell me about actually flying the aircraft. What's it like to fly? Um, so, I, I guess my I, I had zero flying experience before the Air Force, um, and I was on first Texan course yeah. when, when that got brought in, um, and had a really short stint on the King Air. So, through that onto the P3, I guess. My, my kind of first impressions of it was that it was from a crew perspective it was really big like you go even just for like a like a pot like a really selfish pilot training sortie where you're just working on things for me you've still got maybe 10 or 12 people on board that are that are enduring my circuits so 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 that was a big change and and giving you giving you critiques as you go which is always great actually the worst critique is when everyone's silent um, <laughs> Yeah, so that, that was a big change. Um, other change being uh, a change to the, the purely flight deck dynamic, having the flight engineer as well. So in addition to the pilots having a flight engine who um, is involved in flight path control with uh, power leaders a lot of the time um, in charge of our speeds that we're flying. Uh, and then kind of building on that into a mission set, having the, the flight engines have generally, I think it's fair to say, got more hours than the pilots on squadron so yeah, usually the, moment, the person with the most experiences of situations are the flight engineers who mm -hmm. contribute significantly to the picture at the window yeah. um, so that that's actually going to be a really interesting change culturally going to the p8 and not having a flight engine position anymore oh, yeah. Yeah. so how, how many trades have been dropped with because there's isn't two oh, three three yeah here yeah, yeah. So the uh, air engineers um the air ordnance specialists um and the uh, Centre employment managers, so that's um, effectively like uh, commissioned uh, operators. Um, so those three will be um, no longer required on the, the PA. Um, effectively, the air ordnance specialist that looks after all of our weapons and, and search stores and um, uh, is our imagery um, specialist with our effectively with our cameras. Um, a lot of those tasks will now be picked up by the um, AWS, so the Air Warfare Specialists um, will pick up a lot of those roles. Uh, in terms of the um, Air Engineers, all of that, um, I guess, technical knowledge of, of the aircraft now falls to the, the pilots within the P-8. Um, and you know, <laughs> at, at the end of the day, it's a very different system. It's a modern system versus you know the P-3 was actually built. Um, and designed for you know, people that knew and understood the system in depth, and, and hence why the engineers are an actual you know, critical part of it. Um, the modern flying systems, it, it's not uh, quite as necessary to have that in-depth technical knowledge of how everything works and all the electrical pathways work on the yeah. aircraft. Um, and our air warfare officers, so effectively our TACOs and information managers, um, that doesn't change too much. That, that sort of still stays the same in terms of mission. Uh, mission management and uh, communication management. Okay. 
So will the pilots actually get formal training in the engineering side? I, th I think it'll, the requirement won't be the same level of technical knowledge uh, as, as the CEO was alluding to, yeah. because that uh, a new Boeing aircraft is, has, is just really clever yeah. at, at self-diagnosis and solutions, and it's a lot more light equals solution oriented versus the P3 where there's so many redundancies and complexities and the design philosophy is a very swept up crew with an SME on the flight deck to, to run a solution, um, particularly when you've got so many redundancies and you've got so many systems that, that are designed in the 60s that you're often creating bespoke solutions on, on the fly through your own processes and, and I don't think is that level of um, of fault finding and solution stuff on the PA? I'll I'll tell you once I'm a conversion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, with your trade, you obviously picking up the air wooden side. Um, is that all part of the conversion? Or? Uh, no. So for us over in America, it was slightly different because we have acoustic and um, electronic warfare AWS, and so. Um, for us acoustic, AWS, we only learnt acoustic in America um, and the electronic warfare guys learnt the radar, camera and the EDUB system. Um, the acoustic system was exactly the same as what's on the P3 so that was kind of bonus for me um, because I was newly qualified acoustics and over in America they use the P8 like way more for acoustic side of stuff, side of things. Um, so I learned a lot more than what I thought I would in my time over there. Um, and now it's just getting back to New Zealand now. Um, through the transition period, we'll be learning about the radar and camera and being able to work together and bring it all together. And I'm excited to bring that ordnance stuff into it, essentially get on the camera and sort out the food when we organise the game. <laughs> <laughs> that's going to be the biggest yeah. loss, to, I think that's going to be the biggest change to the, to the, between the P3 oh, and the P8. going to be the galley. There's so much conversation about the coffee pot and the galley and yeah. how we're going to organise it all, but we'll make it work. How fly is that coffee? <laughs> <laughs> at, at the end of the day, um, you know, we are the probably the most well-fed P3 crew from around the world and, and we're flowing with um, the Koreans and the Australians and the Canadians and um, on their P3s, none of them um, ever have nearly as good a food or, or as well fed or looked after as what our crew is. So, you know, we come up with those solutions. Again, we talked about New Zealand ingenuity. I have no doubt that the, uh, the crews will figure out ways to make sure that they are also well fed and looked after because it's a huge part of morale um, is that, that ability um, to effectively look after each other. You're talking about potentially 10, 12 hour search and rescues. Um, you need to actually sort of keep your energy levels up, and part of that is actually a bit of a break from it, is getting down into the galley and uh, doing those sorts of things. So I think it's it's probably, I know it's something that we celebrate within the um, within Five Squadron, um, but it's an essential part of yeah. being successful. An interesting thing, too, I don't know whether you guys know this, but it goes back a long time in the squadron because. The, the squadron formed with short Singapore flying boats. They had a galley on board because they were a 1930s, um, so, you know, a peacetime um, patrol aircraft. And so they had a galley on board. And I've talked to guys that flew on them and said, oh, yeah, we used to cook roasts and stuff like that yeah. on our patrols. And then, of course, it went on to the Catalinas and the Sunderlands as well. And 
so yeah, I can see why you want to make sure that stays with the next aircraft. Yeah, someone's just got to sign off on the frying pans on the P8. Engineering <laughs> solution. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, by the way, yeah. I find that wild, eh? Like you're you're on a mission and you're you know you're looking for something and you're you could be low level and someone's in the back with two frying pans going with steaks on it and yeah. <laughs> cooking up meals and I was just like, man, it's so cool. <laughs> Does the whole aircraft fill up with the smell of food cooking? Oh, well, enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you, you, get a, you get a little, get a little waft of, of it, but it's yeah. got a pretty good bent down the back. So, yeah, um, yeah. Cool. You, you know, um, you know when someone's burnt toast or something like that. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. I believe it was designed to rid the aircraft of the smell of cigar smoke. Yeah. Day, so. yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. yeah. We don't we don't do that anymore, so we cook instead. Yeah, when I first started on squadron, um, some of the guys like Pierre. And that was still from the generation of guys who they had pipes and everything like that when they flew on the P3. So that was the the generation that started the P3. Though those guys, or oh, apparently, if you look down the tack rail, it was all just a bouquet of smoke. <laughs> and then we probably had a lot more smoke and fumes events <laughs> after they stopped doing that. They probably used to have just as many, but never never picked up on it. Yeah. <laughs> so. Wow. I guess you're going to have a really big hangar here for hire soon. You can rent out the space. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there, there is uh, certainly a lot of people vying for not just the hangar, but our um, headquarters building here as well. Um, so you know, there's still a, um, uh, a lot on base Auckland uh, in terms of uh, wanting good facilities. Yeah. Um, what's going in? So the actual hangar itself will go through a, a refresh. So both the, um, uh, the old uh, hangars will, will go through a full refresh. Um, and so we'll have to shift between there, but um, from there and, and what goes in there, it's kind of up to the uh, the base commander and our estate and infrastructure to, to figure out how they best use it, but um, it will certainly be uh, probably good, uh, you know, look at 40 squadrons perspective, rather than trying to hybrid their hangar for both Boeings and Hercules, they, they potentially could be able to split them off there, um, which makes for just a much better workspace for them. trying to think what else to ask. What have we covered? The, I was, you, know, you, you started to probe into Tom on the flying characteristics of the aircraft, obviously. Um, have, I was lucky enough to be on one of the last crews that um, did the UK air show season. Um, so there's a couple of unique things about a P3, I think. Um, it's built really solid. So um, things like uh, there is no airspeed limit for full control deflection. So 100 or 405 knots, I think, was, uh, was B&E for the aircraft. Uh, in, a, in a roll demonstration, I've seen pilots apply full control deflection um, at 100 feet. It's absolutely fantastic. The, um, I think, you know, it feels a bit slow and big compared to maybe a, you know, a, a fighter or a smaller aircraft, but... Um, yeah, it's a, it's a really solid, you know, almost bulletproof airframe. Um, another one of those things is that the Bombay doors can be opened in V&E as well. It's got a really unique sound. Uh, right. So uh, you know, we tend to, um, to make the most of that on a, on a high-speed flight pass for a roll demonstration or an air show. Um, and uh, it, it really performs 
with the stiff wing of the aircraft that performs very well. Maybe Tom might be able to talk more to it as a, as a pilot, but um, my understanding is it, it does really well at low level um, in those bumps. And uh, when we uh, when we talk about search and rescues, like the, the one the boss mentioned, I was on that one as well, where you've got an, an eight meter sea state um, and uh, like turbulence, low level cloud, um, all of that combines to give you a lot of trust in the airframe. So you know you're sitting there looking at people uh, in the water and fear for their lives, but in the worst weather. Oh, I think I've ever seen, I've uh, felt safe um, on board the aircraft. Uh, another characteristic that um, is kind of specific to P3s is the amount of power that it has um, to weight. So uh, with a four um, constant speed turboprops, um, you've got masses of power available all the time and it's available straight away. And not, yeah, it's a fixed, what do you call it, fixed shaft? Fixed, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, sorry, yeah. immediate power to so yeah, the engine's yeah. running at the same speed the whole time. We just we schedule more fuel, and it just changes the prop blade angle, and so it's oh, just right. instant torque. It's and it's a blowing wing as well, so yeah. if the pilot even thinks he's going to stall it, which they should hopefully never be anywhere near. <laughs> um, but if they do, if, if all they do to recover from the stall essentially is put the power on, and it just increases the airflow of the wing, and it'll un unstall instantly. Okay. It's yeah. um, still speed drops thirty knots if you charge yeah. max power on. Eh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you've got to work pretty hard to store it for power. Okay. So those uh, all combine one to make a really good flying display, and, and oh, I forget which year it was, but uh, Dave Landon Smith I think came second in uh, in Waddington, um, uh, behind I think the Chinooks, uh, by throwing the aircraft around uh, the sky at Waddington. It was a really cool display to be part of, um, and you know that it means that you really feel safe when you're in those risky situations. Um, that um, the application of power flight will be 200 knots and 200 feet. Um, and if the pilot calls for max power or prime power, um, we're out of there in, in, mm. in no time. So, yeah, really good airplane. I think that's, um, you know, great, all of that uh, uh, technology and, and performance of the aircraft is great for air shows. But the real application um, for me comes in the form of redundancy. So when we're sitting down pretty much in the Ross Sea, um, you know, still 1,300 miles from New Zealand, uh, and we have a generator failure at 200 feet. Um, we can pretty much e-handle that engine, knock it out, and actually still climb away from there and, and come back to New Zealand with, with no concerns. Um, the I wasn't on this particular flight, but there was a, a flight where I was uh, in Dunedin and uh, heard that that situation had occurred pretty much on bingo fuel. Um, lost the generator in one of the uh, engines. Um, and climb out and halfway home, I think they got a uh, chips line and another engine or was the other way around. Uh, but effectively issues with two engines, um, but they were able to manage that. Still two good engines, still and able to manage the two um, other engines to get themselves back to uh, the Dunedin. So that level of redundancy in the aircraft is um, what provides you just so much assurity and, and safety in, in the aircraft. So even when you are um, you know, over a thousand miles from the nearest airfield, you just still have so much faith in that aircraft. Yeah. Um, so for me, that that's one of the, the beautiful things about the P3, and I think that makes it one of the most amazing maritime patrol aircrafts for the Southwest Pacific and the area that we're in. Um, so, you know, the P8 will do a good job, but 
Again, a little bit of a biased view, um, rose-tinted <laughs> glasses view yeah. from me, but I still think that the yeah. B3 is just one of the best um, assets to have ever patrolled in the South West Pacific. Yeah. If you have to shut down two engines on the P8, then you're stuffed. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> I don't think the glide characteristics are that good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, have any of you landed on um, Antarctica? Yeah. Yeah. What was that like? Um, ah, I guess it's just... Um, we didn't spend a whole whole lot of time there. Um, we spent more time over, over looking at icebergs and stuff like that. Uh, and when we went there, it was actually um, like in the summer season. Yep. So I was expecting it to be a lot, and the weather was great. And so it was, it was a cool place to visit, well, literally a cool place to visit, but not as cool as I expected, like not as cold as I expected it was yeah. um, at that time of year. Um, but I think they don't, they didn't particularly like having us there from the, the base, like we were a burden to the, mm. To the um, Antarctic sort of people, um, right, yeah. because we're not really contributing to their output, so um, we're not we're not delivering them stuff. So they kind of thought we were a bit of a burden, but um, it was definitely a pretty special place to to see and see and spend some time in. Do they have to get out and shoot the penguins off the runway? Or? <laughs> no, not, not quite. It's a massive long runway. I think it yeah. provides some challenge, well, some challenges for the pilots in, in terms of ground handling and, and stuff, yeah. um, because it is pretty slippery. But then it's a, such a massive runway. Um, we're not quite as fuel constrained as the Herks, so we can get there. We can get a lot closer to um, to Antarctica before having to make the weather call, um, which they sometimes, you know, they have to make that call a little bit further back. But um, we can get quite close to it before we can still turn around and go home. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Uh, what about um, did any of you operate in the Middle East when they were over there? Yeah, so I was on the um, the very original, um, well, I still well, shouldn't say the very original because that was back in the 90s, but um, in 2003 when we uh, took a P3 up there for Operation Troy, um, and operating out of the UAE, and um, the you know that, that original sort of exposure to that environment was um, was quite an eye-opener for us back in, in 03. Um, however, the you know it was kind of always there. We um, we didn't then go back up again until two thousand and fifteen, um, as we were going through the K to the K two transition. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you know and during kind of two thousand and fifteen through until the end of two thousand and seventeen, um, we had deployments up into the Middle East, um, and the mission um, kind of changed and evolved um, as we were up there. But uh, again, you know, operating um, when we were up there, we were effectively, although one aircraft, one crew, and, and kind of a small aspect, um, we were the go-to for, you know, the commander at, I think it was the uh, the 7th Fleet, and for the commanders of the uh, task force up there, uh, because one, um, our, our crews were just excellent at what they did, so when we were asked to relocate or go and locate a particular um, target of interest, um, we were there, we were on task, and we actually had it located within probably an hour. Um, with information on on that particular vessel of, of whatever it was smuggling, um, sent back and back to into the task force command chain. Um, so we we were very much considered um, one of the higher end assets um, because of our high performing teams, um, and not just the the teams on the aircraft, but our support crews, um, our mission support teams, our intelligence officers, imagery analysts that uh, put all that product together. So, and ever since I guess. Um, the, those Takapu deployments, you know, we have been working up in um, Operation FIO, which is um, conducting um, surveillance patrols for um, the UN against sanctions against North Korea, um, and that's off the East China Sea. 
and again we're kind of looked at as the exemplar in terms of the product the intelligence product that we're actually getting so um you know this system that we've currently got on the k2 um, has kind of evolved since that 2015 mark up until now and it is actually you know held up in overseas uh, intelligence communities and agencies as the exemplar product of, uh, of what people want to see Okay. So, um, you know, again, small country, generally, you know, one aircraft, one crew, but um, without doubt, we're punching well above our weight in terms of what we're contributing into the, um, uh, to the wider intelligence network and, you know, to missions like the UN sanctions and, and bits and pieces like that. So, so is the, well, has the <coughs> avionics package on the P3K2 continually evolved uh, and been upgraded as new technology comes along? Um, not not necessarily. So in terms of the actual hardware itself, it's stayed the same from what's on the K2. But um, because the data management system is, is Windows based, we have actually evolved the um, the system. So you know some of the firm, some of the hardware associated with that particular network. But in terms of you know our sensors, in terms of our radar and, and our electro, electro optics kit, um, the electronic warfare kit. The only one that's really upgraded since we went through the K2 transition is the acoustics, uh, where we upgraded to the um, uh, the same system as what we'll be getting on the PA uh, from Boeing. Um, but how we manipulate those systems and then how we also manipulate the data that comes in from those systems has evolved over the last uh, 10 years. Um, and it's been a, you know, a massive um, development period with the help of uh, Becker with the help of Marops, you know, with our New Zealand-based contractors um, to get us to the point where it's actually a very, very effective system intelligence, you know, ISR um, platform. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, in those Middle East deployments, uh, the Orion um, in the heap, how did that handle? Was it just as good? Fine. Yeah? Yeah, I mean, it's like, <clears throat> we, we had a ground aircon car, um, which helped out, but I mean, you, like any aircraft, um, you know, high density altitudes and heat and stuff like that. So you're using a lot of runway to get airborne when you take it because most of the time we're doing sort of eight plus hour patrols, so we're taking off with max gas all the time. Um, so yeah, use up a lot of runway, but then we're operating at twelve thousand foot runways. So um, you know, and there's nothing in front of you when you take off. So if you just have a bit of a a long leisurely runway, long you, you've got a lot of time to look for <laughs> look at things on the on the roll. Um, <laughs> And then, uh, yeah, it's a bit of a change when you come back from three months of doing that to then doing a, a night CT in Penelpai at 10 degrees and all of a sudden the aircraft just climbs like a rocket. Um, but no, I mean, it's um, we, like there's a bit more time spent on cleaning it and things like that just because of the sand and, and yeah. stuff like that. So the maintainers had to do a bit of, bit more work. Mm-hmm. But um, usually when we um, did the 35-day servicing, the whole detachment would come down and do the aircraft wash, I think, just for an excuse to... Basically, play around with hoses for the, for the afternoon. Um, yeah, it was quite quite pleasant actually. The yeah, quite pleasant to like yeah, just be in a place where you're spraying water around when it's forty degrees. Um, forty. Yeah. Fifty. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, depending on what time you time of the year you were there. Yeah. But um, no, the aircraft. You, the aircon was effective even down at two hundred feet, but you are probably sweating a bit. Uh, but you acclimatised, I think, the first, I did three deployments, and I remember, bit like, the first deployment, um, remember opening the cabin door and just feeling the heat <laughs> hit me, and thinking, oh man, how are we going to, you know, how am I going to deal with this? Um, and then a year later, I was back again for another three months, and 
opened the camera and was like, oh, Becky, it's just back here, back here again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you just acclimatise, get used to it. From a maintenance perspective, um, we took a lot of precautions going up there. So like Tony was saying, the air conditioning cart, we'd cool the airplane down for a couple of hours before we tried to turn anything on, um, make sure everything stayed dry uh, and, uh, and tried to do most of our maintenance in an air-conditioned hangar that we would borrow from the Australians uh, on, on occasion. So um, the, we did have some concerns about the reliability in, that, in those conditions, but the mitigations we took um, took care of it all and, um, and there was no noticeable issues with, with the mission system or the aircraft. Okay. Continued yeah. to perform. Yeah. The aircraft like to be flown, and to be quite honest, I, I think out of about 90-something odd missions up there, I, we dropped maybe one or two flights from memory. Okay. Like our reliability was probably pretty up there. That's good, yeah. yeah. And the dust in the atmosphere or sand storms or anything like that had no issues? Oh, it, like it affects, it affects much like the haze yeah. um, is pretty insane. It doesn't, well, it has an, an effect on sensors, but we're, like the sensor operators are always, and the tech crew are always looking to optimise, so we're always sort of up and down looking for that. Yeah. But it's quite unnerving from a flight deck point of view when you're down at sort of 300 feet in this goopy haze and you're tracking to a, a massive super tanker and you know it's only a couple of miles away from you and you can't see it yeah. and then all of a sudden it just it comes in you know just sort of pops into view out of the haze and you're like whoa where did you know that thing come from because and you're used to operating around this part of the world and you can see for you know you'd see stuff for 50 60 miles you know and then up there you just you know, five miles away from a super tanker and you can't, you yeah. can't see it. <laughs> Another thing too that the um, the Orion did uh, six years ago uh, was the Kaikoura earthquake and you guys basically did the survey of everything with the roads and, and you've done that up in the Pacific after disasters and stuff like that. The disaster work that you guys do kind of doesn't get a lot of coverage, does it? The, the, the post-disaster no. work. And I just wonder if you've got any sort of thoughts on that. Um, we'll always be the first um, asset in, right? So at the end of the day, our job is to go and actually provide um, an assessment for uh, the government to then start making uh, you know, their decisions on what, what level of aid and what needs to be pushed. And, uh, and in some cases, actually just trying to establish communication if communication has been cut. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty important role, but it, it all happens within the first 24 to 48 hours after that. And then from there, for all intents and purposes, everything kind of gets handed over to 40 Squadron and the Navy, depending on what level of um, support that's pushed in. Um, and, and by that stage, you know, that's, I guess, when all the media coverage starts coming in in terms of what it is we're actually giving. Um, so, you know, in terms of the visibility of what the Orion does, it's, it's, it's not really there, but that's, you know, not really our concern. Our concern is making sure that we get up there as soon as possible to um, basically provide aid. And so if there's been some islands that have been cut off that we can actually drop some supplies to, uh, that we can potentially communicate with. Um, if there's been certain medical events, we can actually start trying to relay that information. Um, and then obviously making sure that we get as good a data as possible um, that can go back to all of the experts down in Wellington that determine what is the level of aid and support that's actually required. Um, so that's, you know, for us, our job in terms of that humanitarian aid, um, we're kind of done and dusted after about 48 hours. Um, and, and that's what the role of the aircraft is. So the, um, 
uh, probably the most interesting one of, of recent time was the uh, uh, the volcano in Tonga. Um, and pretty much uh, within about 12 hours after that first eruption, we were trying to get in there. And um, we we couldn't because the the um, terminal area forecast that Tonga was still indicating rock rain. I've never seen rock rain on a TAF before, but it was there in Tonga <laughs> after that volcano. Wow. Um, but uh, 12 hours after that, we were we were up there and um, and obviously up the um, uh, the windward side of the the volcano and getting images um, of that whole area um, that we could actually send back and, and also of um, Nukualofa. Uh, as well, in terms of the runway, so we knew, you know, could our Herx get in there, um, and so that uh, that was obviously very key. Mm. What I've recently found out is some of the imagery that we took of the um, the volcano and the cone and the activity is actually being used by NASA um, as they start looking at um, um, the impacts of uh, that particular volcano, but not just that, but also for some sort of interplanetary investigations as well. Okay. Uh, really random stuff, but you know that's that's the far you know the far reaches I guess that our imagery actually gets to. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. pretty cool to learn that our imagery is actually being used by NASA. And that that post disaster imagery that you guys get, it's so important at the time, but also down the track. That's that's a really good historical record, doesn't it? It's going to be for for any disaster if someone wants to study that. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah. Um, I was so I was on the um, Christchurch earthquake flight. And that one was, we probably initially had less idea about what was going on than anyone else in the country because we've been airborne on a training flight, got told to come back and refuel and then go down there. And so um, we didn't know, we just been said there was an earthquake at Christchurch yeah. and we didn't know how serious it was because we were airborne. And then we got down there and um, because the cloud base forced us quite low, so we were down probably below a thousand feet over the city and um, that was... Pretty, uh, pretty crazy to see in New Zealand because we just the the wide. I think we probably saw more than anyone else just the wide scale of destruction, yeah. um, and that was yeah, that was an intense flight. Yeah, bad. So, and yeah, there's a lot of um, I guess yeah, flying over like the CTV building and stuff like that, um, and being able to just see that whole big picture of, of what was going on there was real. Like in a after doing it in the Pacific, we it's sort of a bit detached from it to see it in a New Zealand city was. Um, yeah, it's pretty shocking to be quite honest. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Are there any other roles that the public doesn't really know about? Um, I don't mean top secret stuff, but <laughs> you know, is there anything else that you guys are doing that probably should be highlighted with the Orion's career? Um, I guess a lot of um, what we do in terms of the overall impact of, of our patrols and you know when we do the um, likes of the UN patrols up off the East China Sea, or you know, we're contributing into the um, task forces in the, in the Middle East in terms of uh, anti-smuggling, anti-piracy, um, security and stability. Um, a lot of that, in terms of what we output, doesn't really um, get highlighted to uh, the public. Um, and, and to be fair, it, it probably doesn't look that sexy to the public. So it's, um, but the the strategic impact of the P three is um, absolutely huge. Um, I've had a brief from um, a chief of defence force when we were up in the Middle East, and and he was actually um, uh, about to go up to Europe with a, a minister's visit. 
Um, and he kind of spoke to us and was sort of saying, look, the, um, when we go on these ministers' visits, you know, the first things in terms of these diplomatic talks that they've discussed is actually what our military is doing. And I, I see your P3 is, uh, is operating in the Middle East. You know, um, thanks, thanks for your contribution and, and you know, how is it all going? Um, so they're not talking about butter, they're not talking about movies, they're not talking about uh, you know, tourism, they're, they're talking about what our military is doing. Um, so in terms of a strategic impact, um, we have a huge strategic impact that, uh, with the P3 um, that isn't widely known and it's not widely publicised either. Um, you know, from our perspective, does that bother us? Well, no, because it's our job and, and we know. Um, but without doubt, it's you know from a, from a public perspective, um, we get on and do our job. The, the thing that's advertised is the search and rescue stuff, which is great because it is um, I think it's hearts and minds. Um, but certainly, you know, the, the immobility of forty squadron um, is always going to come across and be advertised a lot more than the P 3s out doing another patrol. Um, so, but that's that's probably one of the biggest things that's not particularly well understood by the public. So the, the Orion, one of its premier roles when it was first brought in was, you know, we had the Cold War going on and everything, and it was an anti-submarine warfare aircraft. Um, is this still a thing? Is it? Are you still looking for subs and all that kind of thing as well? Or well, we still can look for subs. Yeah. We've still got the capability. Yeah. Um, we're not really training. Well, we are training basic capability at the moment still, but we yeah. still have the capability, maintaining that capability, but... Um, we're not really doing the, the overseas exercises and things like that where we were actively doing that. Yeah. But if we found a, if we happened across a submarine on a patrol, we'd definitely be able to prosecute it. Yeah. Mm. That's so, it. so since I joined Squadron in 2019, so I've been on two exercises to Australia where we've worked with uh, Australian submarine on exercise and, and done um, activities with them and with the frigates and with naval helicopters and all sorts of stuff. So we, in my time on Squadron, we've exercised... In, in that space. Yeah, yeah. And so the anti-submarine role that will carry on with the P8? Have yes. You, you, you've been doing that sort of thing with the training as well? Oh yes, we've been doing that with the training and the Americans are definitely more specialised in it so we've definitely had our eyes open to the capabilities and what we could be capable of and are capable of. Okay. Cool. Well, I... Can't really think of too much more to ask you guys. I really appreciate this chance to sit down and discuss one of our country's greatest aircraft. I mean, I'm definitely going to miss it at air shows, and, <laughs> yeah. and I always appreciate seeing those articles come up of uh, the guys, the things that you guys are doing. So, um, yeah, thank you very much. Thank you for your service as well. Thanks, Cheers. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for coming out. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.